Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, Editor-in-Chief of Kaiser Health News, a former health correspondent of the New York at the New York Times and still a contributing op-ed writer and author of the book An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. But tonight is not about me. I'm very pleased to be your moderator for today's program with Dr. Tom Frieden. Uh, the program is part of the Commonwealth Club series on the future of democracy, supported by Betsy and Roy Eisenhart. And now uh, it's my pleasure to get on with the business of the night to introduce today's program and our guest, Dr. Tom Frieden, MD, Director of the Center's for Disease Control under President Obama, Health Commissioner of the City of New York under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and current President and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Um, we've known each other uh, for many years since the old days in New York. The COVID pandemic has raised significant issues of concern for a democratic society, obviously, notably that of balancing personal freedom against the greater good. We've seen that with masks, with vaccines, with quarantines, um, with testing, social distancing. And now, you know, we're dealing with should vaccines, uh, can they be, should they be mandated? Um, by schools, by businesses. It's a very complicated question. Um, so uh, we're trying to figure that out tonight. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get a little further along the course. How should this issue be most appropriately at this time of uh, great national need and great national urgency? I mean, we've, of course, dealt with this in a lesser way with seatbelts, with smoking in restaurants. But Oddly, um, with this massive pandemic, we seem not quite to know how to handle it once again. So how well is America actually equipped to handle this kind of crisis? And how can we best reconcile the protection of individual rights, which um, we've heard many times this year are really, really important to Americans with the need for a national uh, uniform effort to combat the pandemic? Um, Dr. Tom Friedman is in a position to address all this. He's a physician trained in internal medicine, infectious diseases, public health, and epidemiology. He began his public health career in New York City, confronting the largest outbreak of uh, multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis to occur in the United States. I believe that's when we first met. Um, he was then assigned to India on loan from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where he helped scale up a program for, for effective tuberculosis diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring. Uh, asked to return to New York City to become Mayor Mike Bloomberg's health commissioner, he directed efforts to reduce smoking and other leading causes of death that increased life expectancy in my hometown, New York, by three years. Uh, as director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Frieden oversaw the work that helped end the 2014 West Africa uh, Ebola epidemic. And he now, um, having done all that, leads Resolve to Save Lives, a $225 million five-year initiative of vital strategy, strategies, working with countries to prevent 100 million deaths and to make the world safer from epidemics. He's also a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations. And today we're going to have an important discussion about these issues, protecting the rights and also the health of Americans. So Dr. Frieden, who I will call Tom, and he will call Libby, as I am known to most people. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. I guess let's let's get going. You know, this has come up, as I said in my introduction, again and again, you know, what are the interests of the public health versus uh, personal freedoms? You know, it's my right not to wear a mask. It's my right, my choice uh, to get vaccinated. Um, why is this so much more present in the U.S. than it is in other countries? Well, I think the pandemic was enormously politicized here. And unfortunately, uh, we're still paying the price for that. 
with uh, reluctance to listen to public health recommendations and a suspicion of the motivations behind public health re recommendations from a not insubstantial proportion of the population. I start though with a couple of basic concepts. The first is that old civics line, your right to swing your fist ends at my nose. And yeah, you don't have to wear a mask as long as you don't come inside to a grocery store. And in fact, the checkout person who's gonna go home and in fact her mother or grandmother or aunt who may die from it. You don't have the right to spread disease when that can be avoided. You just don't. And uh, that is a hard lesson. We also, I think, in this country sometimes don't fully recognize the degree to which our fates are bound up together. And take vaccination as an example. The vaccines are remarkably, astonishingly effective, but your vaccine will be more effective if people around you are vaccinated. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is what can you do when you've been vaccinated? Actually, that question uh, is understandable, but the most encouraging answer is going to be, what can you do when you and most of the people around you have been vaccinated? Because that's going to be very different from just what can you do when you have been vaccinated. And let me, let me just let me give a third basic concept. The first is basically uh, your right to swing your fist ends at my nose. The second is uh, that um, uh, we really do have to think of what implications our uh, behaviors are. But the third is that there are certain things that are best done collectively. We may like to think we're the masters of our own destiny. We can determine what happens. But actually, what we do together, what we collectively do, makes a big difference. So the more of us who wear masks, the safer we all are. The more of us who are vaccinated, the safer we all are. And the more we're concerned about uncontrolled spread of COVID anywhere in the US and anywhere in the world, the more we can reduce the risk of really dangerous, deadly variants, and the safer we'll be. Now, this has been the advice of scientists, right? Once they were um, unmuzzled and allowed to say what they thought, and certainly the Biden administration has encouraged that. Um, but as we've seen in places like Michigan, when uh, the governor tried to be really explicit about this and say, no, you have to close those restaurants down. It's not safe. Or, uh, you know, or you must wear a mask. She ended up with people with guns on her doorstep, right? Um, why is that? Why do people feel so crazily passionate about not wearing a mask, which I would say is a pretty simple intervention, well, I think we have to distinguish between the mask issue and the closures issue. And uh, with masks, I think a lot is because of politicization. You really had uh, former President Trump ridiculing people who wore masks, making it a presidential campaign issue. From the moment the CDC recommended masks, this to me was kind of the, uh, of all of the low points of the US response to COVID, this might have been the lowest. You had CDC recommending masks from the podium at the White House. And at that same press conference, the president of the United States saying, I'm not going to wear a mask. Now, my sense of policy is that it is entirely within the president's discretion to say, we're not going to recommend masks. Uh, but to have the, the White House approve a policy recommending masks and then say, I'm not going to wear them, it was just really the low point of our response. And Libby, if I can get a little bit philosophical here, I think we think about freedom, but we have to think about freedom more broadly. And I think about FDR's famous Four Freedoms speech, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And uh, I think that's taken one step further in Amartya Sen's work, development as freedom, understanding that, you know, if you're on a ventilator in an ICU, you're not very free. 
And so we really can't let one person's freedom um, allow another person to experience a, a real loss of freedom, a real increase in fear, a real increase in want. Absolutely. Now, um, can you take us back a little bit, because you were part of this, I believe, uh, smoking bans in, in restaurants, right? Um, that wasn't an acute crisis. Uh, some people said, oh, I, I need to smoke in restaurants. Likewise, I had relatives in Arizona who said, I'm never going to wear a seatbelt. You know, now it's just habit. It's just taken for granted. We are in a crisis right now. This is not like a bubbling public health problem. It's a full-blown pandemic. So, again, how do we overcome that political, politically induced reluctance with a sense of, you know, the, the sky is falling? Because it is. I mean, this is really serious stuff now. Well, a couple of things. One um, I've, I've been part of a couple of focus groups with vaccine-hesitant uh, Trump voters, and it's been very interesting to listen to what they have to say. Um, they have perfectly valid questions and concerns. They're quite alienated from the government. From They feel that the epidemic and the vaccine has been politicized and weaponized. They feel that they've been disrespected. They feel that just by asking questions about vaccines, um, they've been described as bad people. And, and I think uh, all groups need certain things in common. They need their concerns listened to. They need validation that, yes, it's understandable to have those concerns. They need um, the facts clearly and plainly without spin. Uh, whether those facts are uncomfortable, especially if those facts are uncomfortable. And they also need stories, stories to make clear um, the human costs of the pandemic. And one of the uncomfortable or difficult to reconcile facts is that this is a really surprising virus. 199 out of 200 people who get it are not gonna die from it. And 30, 40, 50% of people who get it won't even know they have it. So when you tell people this is a deadly virus and they know 10, 20 people who've had it and they all did fine, that doesn't ring true. And that validates their concern and their questions. And one of the issues that I think is very difficult is to convey to people that we don't always have certainty, but that doesn't mean there isn't a, a right way forward. And that means admitting uncertainty, in one of the focus groups I mentioned, the leading question was, how can you be certain there aren't long-term negative side effects from these vaccines? And I thought about it. I said, I can't. I can't be certain. I can't promise you that. That's the honest truth. What I can tell you is that the likelihood that you'll have long-term complications of COVID is vastly higher than any remote theoretical concern that there may be a problem with the vaccine. What I can tell you is that if you get COVID, it's going to cause billions of copies of the virus to spread all over your body for a week or 10 days. That Many people feel bad for weeks or months, and we don't know, but some may feel bad for years. And in contrast, when you get the vaccine, it's gone from your body within a day after it's taught your immune system how to recognize and kill the virus. So I think there are ways to, to reach out to people. The issue of closure of businesses is more complicated, I think. And um, I think in public health, we have to be very frank that um, livelihoods also have a major health consequence and increases in poverty, unemployment, uh, increases in uh, economic stress have definite health harms. And that's why I believe um, it's really up to each community to make an open, transparent decision of what they're going to do. I think you've seen great innovations in the past year. Uh, I think it was from Texas first I saw, hey, curbside pickup of things from stores. What a great idea. Outdoors is, you wouldn't say 100% safe, but massively safer than indoors. Um, there are ways to adapt, and we have to keep as much of our economy going as possible for lots of reasons, but do that as safely as possible 
protecting workers. And that's the tie-in, I think, with the Smoke-Free Air Act. Uh, we had people who said, hey, I have a right to smoke in a restaurant. Well, that restaurant is someone else's workplace. Uh, we don't have a right to go to your workplace and expose you to chemicals that might give you a heart attack or cancer. What gives you a right to do that in somebody else's workplace? Yeah. But, but of course, reopening businesses and uh, is tied to vaccines. So there are a whole lot of people who, in parts of the country where they say, well, we want to reopen business, but we don't want those vaccines and we don't want to wear masks. How can the Biden administration do a U-turn on that for people and help people understand? Because they are not, obviously, they did not get to start from zero, you know, zero. They, they got to start with a lot of disinformation, and now they have to do a U-turn. How can you convince people that the best way to get your business open may well be to have everyone vaccinated? Well, first off, I wouldn't talk about masks and vaccines in the same sentence to groups that are hesitant because masks are so politicized, uh, you want to keep vaccines in a different realm. Second, when it comes to vaccines, I think we need many, many different platforms. Uh, we need to make sure that the groups at highest risk are getting vaccinated at the highest rates. What we need to know for sure is that we are... Um, interrupting a chain of transmission, we are reaching the unreached. And the fact is that when we get our vaccination rates up, we will be at a new normal. So the, if you, the, the more you want to be free, the more you want to have the ability to open businesses, just as you say, Libby, the more we vaccinate, the faster we vaccinate, the sooner that can happen. Now, um, we'll see what, what happens. If we look around the world, a few places that have vaccinated 60, 70% of people plus, they're open for business. We want to be open for business without risking people's lives. Yeah, and this is a question that comes in from the audience. Which countries do you think you did well, have done well, both at the beginning of the pandemic, which, you know, I, I'm always blown away when I look at the total number of deaths in South Korea, right? It's somewhere around 1,500, I think, if that. Um, and which ones are doing well now? Well, I think you've had uh, a number of countries that have done well in different ways. Uh, if you look at testing, South Korea did great. They got all their manufacturers did testing quickly. If you look at contact tracing, Singapore did wonderfully. If you look at government calling everyone together, um, New Zealand did a terrific job. If you look at uh, countries that are decentralized but had a consistent way of working, Germany, real success story there. Um, many of these in, countries. In which, have, in which area do you think Germany? Uh, which well, Germany uh, was able to get a consistent strategy through their very decentralized governance area. They're like the U.S. in having right, which is health decentralized, asked. and yet the chancellor got everyone together. They agreed on a way forward, and they held the line. And what I particularly respected about the German approach was a, a three-word summary of what they needed. Patience, discipline, and solidarity. And uh, that really sums it up well. Uh, you also had many countries in Africa that did a terrific job. Um, Uganda, uh, Senegal, uh, Ghana where they, they knew how to do contact tracing. They do this all the time. They did border controls. They did uh, public, uh, distancing measures. And we worked with them at Resolve to Save Lives to do surveys to see what was happening. And we found quickly that some of the distancing measures were causing very severe uh, hardships. And they could quickly reopen things like outdoor food markets so that people didn't run short of food. Um, but uh, around the world, Fundamentally, the places that did best were the places that uh, were guided by and fully supported public health. And the places that did worst were the places that undermined or ignored public health. And that's true globally, and that's true within the U.S. among jurisdictions. And how would you say we're doing now? Well, we're making a lot of progress in the U.S., um, but we've reopened too soon, 
And so there is a fourth surge. It's not terrible yet. Uh, it would look worse if we hadn't just gone through a horrific third surge. Uh, but we went from 50,000 cases a day to 70,000 diagnosed cases a day, understanding that we're maybe diagnosing a third of cases. That is a huge number. Vaccines are rolling out really well, but we're not targeting them effectively enough. Black and Latinx people are about half as likely to get vaccinated as white people. We're seeing increasing uh, partisan divides. Uh, and though it's fantastic that over 80% of people over the age of 65 have gotten at least one vaccine, that leaves 20% or nearly 20% who haven't. There are about 40 million people over the age of 50 who haven't gotten a vaccine. We need to focus on that. And we need to be more transparent about how different states are doing. Some states are doing really well. We should learn from that. Some states are not doing well. We should try to improve uh, the performance there. And we should look at really where the bulk of unvaccinated people are. Yeah, I saw uh, what to me was kind of a concerning statistic that um, the rates of vaccination in uh, some of the southern states were plateauing, not because they didn't have vaccine, but because they couldn't get takers. I mean, how worried are you that we will end up with this very mixed um, picture around the country where we will have reservoirs of COVID that will make it just, you know, maybe not impossible to, to achieve, uh, to end the pandemic, but it will just trickle on forever because obviously Americans travel and, you know, what happens in, in one state will happen in the others too, as we saw with this pandemic. The biggest wide wild card is variants. Will there be variants that can get around the defense of the vaccine? And uh, that could really undermine pandemic control. Uh, I do think we're seeing right now, we're at the tipping point. We've gone from not enough vaccine to not enough arms to provide vaccine for. And that's that tipping point is happening sooner in some parts of the country than others. And there's not one simple answer to that. One of the approaches has to be to emphasize how serious COVID can be, uh, giving first-person stories of people who've lost a loved one or people who are living with long COVID and struggling in their daily life. Those are very powerful stories, and getting those onto the airwaves in relatable ways uh, to different communities will make a big difference. We also have to get vaccine into more doctors' offices. We have to work with community groups um, and I believe we'll have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That'll make it easier. Uh, we have to do things like door-to-door -door vaccination, vaccination outside of shopping malls, vaccination uh, in churches, vaccination uh, in community centers. Uh, we have to really map. It, there are best practices here. We don't have to have the not invented here philosophy. There is really a way of doing mass vaccination programs. It's called micro-planning, and it's, that's exactly what it is. Uh, globally, whether it's polio or measles or meningitis, you map every household in the community and you figure out how that household can be reached. And that's what we need to start doing for people over the age of 50 and then increasingly for others as well, because vaccination is our way out of this pandemic. If we do it right, by summer, we'll be in much better shape and by fall, we'll be at the new normal. Yeah, one thing I wanted to, I have to give a plug here for my 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 work. Um, and someone asked about the role of media. Uh, we do try very hard to personalize these stories, and we've just completed a year long project with the Guardian, uh, which you may have seen on PBS and NPR and a whole bunch of places, called Lost on the Frontline, which is about the 3,600 healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, who lost their lives. Uh, many. Uh, probably unnecessarily because we had such a wild pandemic and not enough PPE. And as you said, it's a kind of wily unknown virus. Um, but um, I will add to that. Um, and, and just so you know, you know, my mom died of COVID. So I am very, I you know, I know that, it's real. Lydia, I'm very uh, sorry to hear that. No, I, I thank you. Um, but if you're a New Yorker, you knew people who, who died of COVID. Um, it, it, you know, there was no question that this was real. Um, how do we get to those people, though, 
you know, even the media is very divided and politicized. So what I'm trying to figure out is how do you speak to people who, you know, don't read uh, the media outlets that um, you or I might read? You know, we try with the local newspapers, the local radio stations. Uh, Someone in your community died of COVID. And yet, as you said, they'll say, yeah, but I knew 20 people who didn't. So, you know. Well, one important messenger is going to be doctors, people who go to their doctor's office and get a vaccine, uh, insurers calling people and saying, please come in. We, we care about you. We don't want you to uh, get COVID. I do think we have to also appeal to people's uh, sense of, of responsibility. Uh, even if you're not going to be very sick, you might spread it to someone who may die. And we had a report just this week of a nursing home outbreak in which people died uh, that started with an unvaccinated healthcare worker. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, the hardest statistics for me to kind of fathom is that in some nursing homes, only 25% of the workers are vaccinated, uh, you know, because maybe because they're worried, maybe because they can't deny that COVID exists. Or maybe because they've lived for a year with it now and they're just, well, I'm used to this. I had COVID. Should the I had COVID dissuade people from getting vaccination? No, uh, COVID uh, does give you some immunity, uh, but the vaccine-induced immunity is much better than immunity from getting COVID. It's stronger and it's better against variants. So even if you've had COVID, get a vaccine. And Libby, that population of nursing home workers is perhaps one group where I think uh, mandating vaccination may make sense. Or uh, if people don't want to be vaccinated, maybe they need to be tested every day for COVID. Because again, your right to swing your fist doesn't extend to somebody else's nose. You're right if your job is to take care of highly vulnerable people who, even if they've been vaccinated, do have a risk of dying from the disease, uh, there's just, I'm afraid, no excuse not to get vaccinated. And and that kind of leads into the next question. When and where do you think mandates are appropriate? Everyone is struggling with this. I just heard that Northeastern University is going to mandate vaccination for returning students in the fall. Yes or no, every business is struggling with it too. You know, should we have our workers, should we have our workforce? We're struggling with it at Kaiser Family Foundation. It's, it's a challenge. Um, I will say the clearest case is the, the nursing home worker where non-vaccination really is a life and death matter. The, the other situations to think about are institutions where people are together in dorms, like universities or the army. Um, There are some businesses that may want the competitive advantage of saying all of our workers are vaccinated. There may be businesses that say we only have vaccinated people at our facility, uh, both staff and clients. I can imagine uh, a gym saying, you know, Uh, we are going to open our gym, but we're going to have every worker vaccinated and you can only come if you're vaccinated. I'm not suggesting that happens. I'm just saying that the market may actually uh, determine that kind of way forward. Well, and at our our news meeting today, I was saying, I want to see a restaurant put up a sign saying, we vaccinated everyone. You know, that's my restaurant, even if the food isn't quite as good as the one next door. Well, I'll tell you, I would feel much more comfortable going to a restaurant if I knew that uh, all of the staff were vaccinated and that all of, all of the patrons were vaccinated. That's a very different situation from a situation where you have unvaccinated people eating, talking, obviously without masks. And what do you think um, in, in terms of our prioritization, in terms of what we've let open? Schools were some of the last to, to, to be open. Um, some places, restaurants, bars were early on to reopen. Um, did we get it wrong? We got it wrong. Okay. Schools should absolutely have been the last places to close and the first places to open. They're crucially important, not just for education, not just for social protection and development, uh, not just for economic stability of parents, they're really essential for the fabric and future of our society. And 
uh, as early as mid-March of last year, we were saying very clearly, close everything, but keep the schools open if you possibly can. Now, there are a lot of strong feelings about this, and there's been a lot of controversy about it. Um, and with variants, it's now clear that uh, there may be even more spread among children than there was without the variants. But that doesn't change the reality, which is that children very rarely get uh, severely ill from COVID, that most of the spread does not occur in the academic setting, that there are layered ways of making schools safer for staff and for students. Uh, we had a release last July of how to open schools safely. We were joined by Margaret Spellings, um, Education Commissioner under President Bush, and uh, Arnie Duncan, Education Commissioner under Barack Obama. Uh, and, and we really hoped we could see this as a nonpartisan issue. But unfortunately, you had one group saying, you know, open without any safeguards, just open. And that, that's a non-starter. Uh, and you had others saying, don't open till everything is fixed. Ventilation, everyone's been vaccinated. And that's a non-starter. Uh, but our kids really should come first. And our kids' education is crucially important. So keeping schools open, reopening them with layered protections, whether that's windows open, certainly masking, uh, less density, and very importantly, think about the non-academic environments, the teachers' break rooms, where we've seen a lot of spread, after-school contact sports, where we're seeing a lot of spread. Um, keep learning going. Uh, and that's something that is a, an enormously important from a health and societal standpoint. Do you think, um, and this is somewhat delicate, I mean, some of the, one of the most common reasons that school districts couldn't open was because of resistance from teachers unions. Do you think they had too much say in this? Um, the teachers union has very important roles to play in advocating for resources for the educational system, in ensuring that there, isn't, there aren't unfair employment practices, uh, in promoting uh, teacher salaries and uh, benefits, because frankly, we don't pay our teachers nearly enough. Our teachers are doing such incredibly important work. Uh, we need to value that not only with lip service, but with better pay and benefits. Um, I do think some of the dynamics have been problematic in terms of uh, when can schools open. Uh, I think we certainly uh, want educational workers to be at the front of the line for vaccines, and that was done. But we didn't want for people to be saying, well, schools can't open until everybody's vaccinated, because that's a formula for not opening schools this year. And I think we're going to need to have some hard discussions about what to do this summer, because we have uh, a lot of education lost. And how is that going to be made up? And we know that what that's doing is it's further exacerbating the educational and societal inequalities in society. Kids who don't have ready access to high-speed internet, tablets, computers, uh, this is making an unequal society even more unequal. So, but we still haven't resolved the question, um, and we still leave that very much to local school districts how they're going to reopen. And there are safe ways, as you said, and unsafe ways. How do we make it a national strategy? How do we say this is the way to open a school, and we want you all to do it? I mean, you mentioned Germany is a very, it's a federalist state. A country like we are, lots of different states, lots of different parties, but somehow they came together on this. And how do we come together for our children? Well, schools are remarkably decentralized. There are something like 1,500, 15,000 uh, school districts in the country, and they all make their own decisions. Um, I, th I think the, the politicization of this issue in the prior administration really didn't help because uh, there are good guidance documents from CDC. There's a good way forward. Uh, we want to improve ventilation, but we can't hold our, our children's education hostage to uh, fixing 
the heating and ventilation systems in every school in America. Uh, so there are common sense ways forward, increasing outdoors, having layered approaches, having simple tools that, tool, that, student, that schools can use, uh, students, parents, teachers, staff, leadership of schools, leadership of school districts. And I think the materials are quite good on the CDC website. So uh, that should be our way forward. Uh, understanding as we go, uh, where there have been schools, very interesting analysis from Wisconsin, schools were open, very high adherence with masking, virtually no spread in the schools. So it's really in Europe possible too, to I do think. it carefully. Yeah, in some of the European countries too. There, we, there. Um, what do you say to the parents um, and to um, some people who say, I don't want my kid to have to wear a mask at school? You know, that's just such a drag. Um, my kids were in school in Beijing during SARS. They wore masks. You know, it was just an, it was just another thing they had to do, you know, of the many things they didn't like all during the day. I don't know why masks have become so controversial, but I do think that some of that controversy is overstated. Uh, if you actually look at the data, you're talking about a around about 80% of people who are fine with wearing masks. That's a really high number. If we had any other public health campaign and 80% of people were doing it, we'd say, this is an amazing success story. Within a few short months, we've changed behavior massively. And yes, you can see uh, pictures and examples, and there are places where there's low masking. I think one of the issues is... Um, the, the complexity, and this is coming up now in the media, of masks outdoors. Uh, because, you know, they're not, it's not that important. Unless you're really close to a lot of people uh, or you're at particularly high risk of COVID um, the, or you're in a community that has a very high rate of COVID, outdoor masking, you know, not so necessary. I ride my bicycle around New York City. I wear a mask. It's, you know, people won't be nervous. You're just used to it after a while. Um, but interestingly, in East Asia, for many years, people have worn masks routinely when they're in crowded places or if they feel at all under the weather. And that's one of the reasons, probably, that they had a less severe pandemic. And, you know, we have crushed the curve of influenza. So even if COVID magically disappeared, I would hope that you'd have a little bit more mask-wearing in the U.S. than you had before on in crowded places when people aren't feeling well in doctors' offices and elsewhere. Now, can I can I push back a little bit because yes, eighty percent is a really high number, but if I'm in a room in a restaurant and eighty percent of of the diners are wearing masks and twenty percent refuse to, that's not a good thing, right? Um, well, uh, you know, in a restaurant, people are going to be taking off their masks to eat anyway. Or not in a restaurant, but, in a, you know, but, but I mean, you know, in a store. And we see this, you know, all it takes is one person who refuses to wear a mask. To right. And this is why problem. I think mask mandates are so important. It's not fair, really, to the staff of a store to have them try to enforce store policy or plead with people to voluntarily wear a mask or be at risk of infection. Uh, if they can just say, sorry, not, you know, not my policy, but it's a law, uh, that's really a lot easier. And, and that does have a, a resonance with the Smoke-Free Air Act, where we found that if you just put up a sign that said no smoking, and you took away all the ashtrays, enforcement got pretty easy. So you know, no, no, uh, no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service be a good way uh, to move forward. Why are we reluctant to do that at a state, city, national level? There was discussion of it uh, when the Biden administration first came into office. And I think that the country was so politicized that they were worried it would alienate people. Was so there's no uh, difficulty with that in many states, but many states have uh, gotten rid of mask mandates. And I think that's a big mistake. Uh, if you want your businesses open, keep the masks on. The only important freedom that a mask 
restricts is the freedom of the virus to spread and kill people. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you speak a little bit about what we know and why we don't know some things about the effect of vaccination? Why don't we know at this point, um, if I'm fully vaccinated, can I give it to somebody else? When do you think we'll have a better sense of how long immunity lasts? I, I mean, these are all the kind of hovering questions that do hang over. Oh, my gosh, you know, am I going to just have to maybe it won't work that well? Well, first off, we have pretty good data now that the vaccine drastically reduces your likelihood, not just of getting COVID, but of spreading it also. It's not perfect, but the reduction in test positivity was 90% in people tested every week. And of those who were positive, the amount of virus they shed is less. So you're much less likely to uh, be infectious. And if infectious, you're much less infectious. In terms of the duration of immunity, this is common. You give a vaccine, you have to wait and see. If people start getting uh, illness a year or two later, it needs a booster. There are some vaccines we waited a decade. We weren't sure whether some of the hepatitis vaccines needed a booster. You know, there's no way to know for sure. Antibody tests are very interesting, but they don't necessarily correlate with immunity. We don't have a perfect blood test it's what's called a correlate of immunity. So we don't know. And this is one of the things that is frustrating, that a lot of times the, the right answer to these tough questions is it depends. And you often don't hear that on the evening news because it's not that interesting for the evening news. That, oh, we need to collect more data doesn't make a great headline. But we do know that the vaccines are astonishingly effective and extremely safe, and they are our way out of the pandemic. We, we do know that uh, variants are a risk, a theoretical risk to the vaccines, but we don't know if that risk will be borne out by the data. Um, and uh, time will tell whether we need booster shots or not, whether we need a tweaked uh, vaccine or not. Maybe yes, maybe no. And uh, I think we are most likely to retain people's confidence if we level with them. Yeah, yeah. Um uh, how, what do you think about the idea of vaccine passports? And part of me, this is a question for me, why is the only thing we have those, those little white cards that are the same cards I got getting typhoid vaccine in the 1980s? Isn't there a better digital way for a nation such as ours to keep track of who's been vaccinated? Yeah, we've been looking at this uh, written on it for a year, since May of last year. Uh, we do think that vaccine certificates or vaccine verification is inevitably coming. Uh, it has gotten remarkably politicized. Uh, if you look at Israel, they saw vaccine certificates as a way to freedom. They were able to open businesses sooner because they had certificates. And this was a haven for vaccinated people. Uh, you have at least two states in the U.S. that have banned the issuance of vaccine verification. And yet you have times when it's really going to be needed. The CDC guidance for cruise ships reopening is that everyone needs to be vaccinated, all staff and all um, uh, passengers. So uh, the U.S. government, I think, is very afraid of the controversy here. Um, there, there are are right answers here. Um, one, there, there, should, there is going to be vaccine verification. So to me, the debate, should there be or shouldn't there be, is like asking, should the sun come up tomorrow or should it not? It's going to come. The question really is, how can we get it right? Uh, one, it has to be opt-in, can't be mandatory. Otherwise, people won't get vaccinated because they don't want that certification. Two, has to be private. You own your data. Uh, your data can't be sold to other people, can't be hacked, has to be ironclad. Three, it uh, has to be fair. So if you don't have a smartphone, you've still got to be able to have some form of verification. Maybe it's that simple white card. Um, uh, four, it has to be valid. Uh, you have to be able to trust it. And that means it has to go back to a source of truth. And that would be the uh, uh, immunization 
um, registries, the IIS, Immunization Information Systems, in every state of the US, we have these. And if we wanna have our kids' vaccine record, in most states, you can push a button, click a, click a button, and get a printout. Uh, in the same way, you own your data, and you should be able to use it. Ideally, we would have national and international standards uh, that are secure and free and public so that uh, there is a way of accelerating a return to as close to normal as possible. Because we are even seeing now, you know, people selling fake vaccination cards on the internet. So I'm, I'm just curious, why isn't there a, you know, uh, it's like kids getting fake driver's licenses to drink, right? I mean, they seem uh, too easy to, to uh, manipulate, frankly. Yeah, um, and, and uh, this is another reason we should have standards so that uh, they can be trusted. Because basically, like any counterfeit, the existence of counterfeits devalues the uh, the worth of the the real article of a real vaccine verification certificate. Um, what do you have any sense come fall? Uh, what kind of restrictions you expect to still see in place, or does that really depend on how we do from now till then on uh, with vaccination? What I hope is that with Continuing ramp up of vaccination by summer, things will be much better than we there are now with many fewer cases. And by fall, we'll be at the new normal. Now, what does the new normal look like? We'll still have cases and clusters. Um, if we do it right, we'll have more effective COVID support services for people affected by those clusters so we can stop them quickly. We'll be sequencing genomes in real time so that we'll know if there are dangerous variants spreading. We'll have a surge in vaccination as part of control measures around clusters. There are some environments in which masks will still be wise. Um, choirs are an example. You, know, you really spread uh, well and singing through a mask isn't a great thing, but either outdoors or indoors or hang on for a while longer. Uh, communities with outbreaks, are going to need to take precautions. Uh, the pockets of the country that are not well vaccinated and are dealing with outbreaks are going to need to have uh, really a door-to-door -door retail approach of reaching people. But I think in the fall, we should have our schools open, our colleges and universities open. We should have our workplaces open. And uh, we may well still have a fair amount of masking because that makes sense. And that's a small price to pay for the ability to go about our business. How about, can you, you know, we always think of the CDC, which you were ran for, for a number of years as kind of the, um, the gold standard of public health. But I think we learned during the pandemic that our on the ground public health system in many places is uh, not in good shape. What's your takeaway from that? What do you, what did you how did that feel to to watch uh, the, the those door to door public health workers that you're talking about be threatened um, or not exist in many communities anymore? Well, we had many failures. We had political failures, governance failures, but we also had pre existing conditions in the public health system that were weaknesses. Whether uh, the chronic lack of funding, uh, poor coordination among federal, state, city, and local public health departments, uh, an archaic data infrastructure, incomplete laboratory networks, uh, the, the drying up of traditional health staff uh, so that we've had 50,000 fewer healthcare workers. Uh, something like contact tracing is actually a very complicated thing to do. It's not something you do from a, a call center with newly hired staff effectively. It just doesn't work. People need years and years of experience. And we need more of those people. And this is why, Libby, uh, I'm particularly focused on something that we've called the Health Defense Operations Budget Designation. And it's a way of Congress funding public health and getting past the cycle of panic and neglect, because that's what we get. Uh, every time there's an outbreak, there's an infusion of money. It's a lot of money in a little bit of time, hard to spend well. Then it dries up and we don't have the programs we need to protect people. 
the, the ICDO or health defense operations budget that the Congress could pass could change the dynamic on that so that we don't have to choose between really important things, Alzheimer's research or stocking flu vaccines in case of a pandemic, uh, early Head Start or a laboratory system that would detect the next pandemic. Uh, this is the kind of devil's dilemma that Congress has to deal with that could be avoided through uh, this budget maneuver or budget structure, which would allow very specific lines to be exempt from budget caps. Um, we think there's a route to this. There's bipartisan support. And if we don't get it right now, we're not going to get it right. And we can't let this stop at our shores. We need to improve global preparedness because this pandemic is going to go on until it's controlled globally. And right now, we are nowhere near global control. We're nowhere near global access to vaccines. We're nowhere near a plan for manufacturing to get near global access for vaccines. And even past this pandemic, we need new ways to be much more accountable for the ability of the world to find, stop, and prevent health threats. Uh, we proposed something at Resolve uh, that we're calling 717, that every outbreak should be able to be identified within seven days of emergence, within one day reported, investigation started, and response started, and within seven days, effective response implemented everywhere in the world. We know that in global health for HIV, the target of 90-90-90, uh, a way of 90% of people diagnosed, 90% of those treated, 90% of those effectively treated to suppress viral load, that's been galvanizing and increasing accountability. And we hope that something like 717 will do that for global preparedness as well. Um, can I, can I, um, I'll bring up a kind of third rail in this, which is uh, China um, was, you know, may have had that internally, but that wasn't shared with the world very quickly. And you can't respond very quickly to an outbreak once it's already, once the horse is out of the barn, you know, you're, you're, how do we, how do we get better global engagement on this? And particularly with China, since we um, relations are not particularly good at the moment, and yet we know many of these uh, viruses will likely emanate from that part of the world. Well, regardless of how uh, COVID actually started, um, we need better systems to find diseases where, when and where they first emerge all over the world. We need better systems to limit the amount of contact between wildlife and people in things like wet markets. We need systems to make laboratory networks safer and more secure. And that's going to require investment. But health can be a bridge. If you go back to smallpox eradication, at the height of the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union collaborated and uh, really together made sure that we rid the world of smallpox, one of the greatest accomplishments ever. Uh, in the 80s, you had countries literally put war on hold to vaccinate children. So health can be a bridge for peace. And I hope that we recognize that there's really only one enemy here, and that's the virus. It's humans against the virus. The more we're divided, the more the virus will conquer us. The more we're united, and coordinated, the more we can get the upper hand. And how do we get back to that place from now that we're so divided? I mean, you know, certainly personal liberties have always been important to Americans, probably more so. You know, the Scandinavians will always say we did a good job because we think about, it's our culture to think about society. Americans' culture is to think about it's my freedom to do what I want. And yet, you know, for the polio epidemic, we came together. I, mean, I assume there were political parties then. Do you think we can still? Uh, do you think you'll get the Republicans on board for the kind of uh, budget proposal you're, you're, you're suggesting? Well, I hope so. We had, we had Elvis Presley getting a polio vaccine, and that was helpful. So, you know, if he's out there, maybe he'll take a COVID vaccine. <laughs> I don't uh, think but, he needs one anymore, but uh, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that um, we need to 
try to depoliticize the issues, get it into the doctor scientific realm, um, take the politicians out of it. In fact, this was one of the lessons from the uh, 1976 swine flu outbreak that uh, President Ford had made it a political issue. Um, and then there was a problem with the vaccine. It was a mess. And so early on in the Obama administration, we had a, a history seminar, basically, with President Obama. And the conclusion, and he talks about this in his, in his book, is he should stay out of it and let the doctors do the talking. And I think the more we can let the science speak, uh, there are valid issues that need to be addressed on a policy level. I'm delighted, for example, with yesterday's announcement that there will be a way for small businesses to get a tax um, consideration for giving their workers a, a day off for a vaccination, because that's the kind of thing we need to do uh, to work together. There is a lot that does unite us, and we do uh, tend to emphasize the things that divide us. One of the things that's very important is that we get a better sense of uh, a common ground of facts that, you know, uh, Senator Moynihan used to say, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. Unfortunately, it feels like um, that's not the case anymore. Now people seem to be entitled to both their own opinion and their own facts. If we could try to get back onto this common ground of facts, I think that'd be a great step forward. And you think that will kind of dampen this? It's my my freedom to to make. I mean, well, to well, make a choice also, to make a bad choice. There's a social norm here. You mentioned seatbelts earlier, and uh, seatbelts are an even more difficult case because it really uh, isn't so much about you harming others. It's about uh, you being safe yourself. And of course, if you get in an accident and society has to pay for your care, that indirectly harms others, but it's not as direct as something like secondhand smoke or uh, infecting others with a virus because you didn't want to wear a mask. So I do think the social norm uh, is bending toward justice here, is bending toward fairness, is bending toward empathy. And there are uh, certainly holdouts there. Uh, there's a lack of understanding. There's lack of understanding of science. There's the fact that there aren't definitive sources of information. We don't have a Walter Cronkite that people turn to these days. So we do have to rebuild some of those bonds of society. And that's one of the things that we at Resolve to Save Lives work on in this country and around the world. Uh, we work on a world where we can have a better understanding of how we can all be safer, uh, how we can all be more safely interconnected. We are interconnected. How do we do that without undue risk? How do we make sure that we can allow trade and travel uh, and uh, economic activities to resume rapidly? How do we make sure that people are reaching their full potential? Health is not a zero-sum game. Uh, if people are healthier elsewhere in the world, we are better off. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think what we have to recognize when it comes to health is that ill health anywhere is a threat to health everywhere. I, I don't know. Part of me is hearing you say Americans stop being so selfish. Uh, don't think about yourself. And uh, I'm with you, but um, it's a hard thing for people to hear right now. Um, where well, you directed the CDC, um, FDA, HHS, they are all at some level political agencies. They have a political side to them. Um, do you, and obviously they were highly politicized under the Trump administration. How's the Biden administration doing in letting science be science? I think I'm, I'm really encouraged by the approach. Really, the, the three biggest problems with the approach of the last administration was uh, a lack of organization. It wasn't clear who was doing what, who was in charge. A lack of a focus on science with theories being spouted without any evidence and very poor communication. And the Biden administration has done very well on all of those three issues. 
So I'm, I'm encouraged by how things are going. Um, I, I do think that um, we have to be careful if we talk about selfishness, because the fact is people are tired. All of us are tired. We're, we're sick and tired of this pandemic. <laughs> we want it to be over. Um, yeah. And uh, we have to empathize with that feeling and say, all right, let's figure out how we can uh, get through it. Let's figure out what we can do safely between now and summer and come fall. And uh, truly, immunity is just around the corner. And with that will come a new reality here that is much more comfortable. We will be able to dispense with our masks in uh, outdoors, certainly over the summer and fall, uh, in most communities for most people. We will be able to get back to work, restaurants and bars in the fall. Uh, there's a, a bright future coming, but we have to hang in there. And I, I keep going back to that uh, three-word summary, patience, discipline, and solidarity. Um, we don't have to wait forever. We've waited an awfully long time. It's just going to be a couple more months till things are really in much better shape than they are now. Discipline, we have to focus on reaching the unreached with vaccines and solidarity. We have to recognize that ill health anywhere is a threat to health everywhere. And in terms of reaching those who have not been reached yet, I mean, we often see that knowing someone who had COVID, having COVID in your community is is a powerful lesson. Um, uh, how, how will we reach that last, you know, I even heard a, a county where they were doing really well and they asked the county health commissioner, can you get to herd immunity? And she said, I think we can get to 60%. How do you reach that 40%? Um, how do you, without having, you know, your mom die uh, to believe that, that this is, this is important. We need um, multiple platforms, pharmacies, doctor's offices, community vaccination sites. We need community organizations. We need outreach. We need powerful testimonies, testimonials of what's going on. We need information and tracking, uh, focused outreach to the highest risk groups, learning lessons of what works. Uh, the, the easier half is over. Uh, more than half of adults are vaccinated. Uh, the, the next 20, 30, 40, we hope, percent are going to be increasingly difficult. Uh, but, you know, hard is what we can do in this country uh, if we put our minds to it. And because so much is at stake, lives and livelihoods. Are there ways we can make getting a vaccine easier than not getting a vaccine? Um, I heard a radio piece about a truck driver who said, oh, I, I saw they were offering by the side of the road. So my wife kept telling me I should get one. So, I, yeah, I, I just pulled over and got one. Yeah, Absolutely. We need to be vaccinating outside of supermarkets, restaurants, bars, subway stations. We need to make it easier to get the vaccine than not to get the vaccine. Convenience outweighs reluctance. And uh, that's one important way. There's no magic answer to getting people vaccinated, but having many different ways to get to yes will be very important. Okay, we're, we're about to wrap up here, but one last question for you, and this one's for me. Okay, people like you, uh, pe people infect in infectious disease have been saying for decades a pandemic is coming. Will we learn now or, you know, this will not be the last one? It could be another 50 years. It could be another five years. It could be Will another we five. remember? could be another five days. Um, we know there will be another pandemic threat. And what hangs in the balance right now is, will we continue to be so woefully underprepared? And I'm hopeful that the world will learn this lesson. $20 trillion, 3 million lives and counting has been the cost of this pandemic and much of that avoidable. And the next pandemic could be worse. This pandemic is getting worse. The variants are more uh, transmissible, and they're more severe. 
The next one could be deadlier and even more transmissible. Uh, this is the teachable moment the world needs. It is literally a now or never moment to make the world safer from pandemics. So I'm hopeful that we in this country and working together with the world will make a big difference to have a safer world for ourselves and for our children. Well, I hope we don't blow it. I hope, uh, I, I, you know, I hope Resolve can lead the way and help help chart the course for that. So uh, thank you, Dr. Tom Frieden, Frieden for uh, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and former health commissioner of the city of New York, my hometown, and current president and CEO of the Resolve, of Resolve to Save Lives. Um, thanks for everyone who listened in tonight. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. And uh, just to reminder, this program has been part of the Commonwealth Club series on the future of democracy, supported by Betsy and Roy Eisenhart. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, Editor-in-Chief of Kaiser Health News. Uh, and uh, author of An American Sickness, um, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. And um, boy, I hope we've learned from this horrible year that we've all gone through and uh, can hang on a few months longer until the light at the end of the tunnel is here. So thank you, Dr. Frieden, and uh, good night to everyone. Thank you very much, and good night all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.